during the 2016 presidential election, many Christians agonized over their choices as they sought to steward their responsibilities as citizens. Perhaps you felt that agony. A number of Christians declared that the election with these two really undesirable major candidates was an indication of God's judgment on the country. They wrote in social media or preached in sermons that God was withdrawing his hand from this country, his hand of blessing, and forsaking the country in judgment. I don't know what you think about that. But for my part, I think those Christians saw signs of judgment in the election cycle almost correctly. I think the judgment of God on the country is clear for people with eyes to see. But not just because of the election, you understand. What I think is less clear for the church is God's judgment on his people. I'm less worried about America and more worried about the church. And that's because, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter seems to have two concerns, not so much for the civic situation, the political situation of his day, but he has concern for the church. The church recognized that judgment begins with her and concern for the loss. That the countries, the nations recognize there is a gospel to be obeyed and there's no hope for those who don't obey it. Isaiah tells us of a similar time when God began to judge the nations. But you will recall in these first couple of chapters, we've not yet gotten to the pagan nations. Everything that Isaiah has said thus far in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he says to God's old covenant church, God's old covenant people, Israel, and specifically Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah 3 gives us a picture of what it looks like when judgment begins at the household of God's people. We see three things. Three collapses. The the collapse of society, verses 1 to 8. The collapse of morality, verses 9 to 12. And the collapse of the covenant itself, verse 13 down to chapter 4, verse 1. The collapse of society, the collapse of morality, the collapse of the covenant. Beloved, perhaps this is a good way to summarize the sermon. We must stand with God or we will fall in judgment. We must stand with God or we will most certainly fall in judgment. Isaiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And thus, in this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. 
for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scars, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The first thing we see here when God turns to Judah and Jerusalem to deal with his old covenant people, we see that his judgment results in the collapse of society in verses 1 to 8. People cannot expect to turn away from God and stand without falling. To fall from God is to fall in every way possible. Notice, first of all, the collapse of the economy in verse 1. Isaiah calls, he says, behold or, or look. He's, he's urgently trying to get their attention. He wants them to see what's going to happen because of their rejection of God. He describes God as the Lord God of hosts, which means he's the, the God of the armies of heaven. We're seeing God in his, in his majesty and his power. And Isaiah points out that God, notice, is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. In one sense, every judgment of God involves a taking away. When God judges people, he removes his grace. He takes away his kindness. He withdraws in his love. He, he steps back from protecting. In that sense, judgment is to be left to suffer whatever befalls us without God's support. And that's how Isaiah puts it here. God is taken away from Jerusalem and Judah, support and supply. Those two words, support and supply, are the, are the masculine and feminine forms of the, of the same word. Isaiah 3, 2 to 8 really focuses on the men as they represent Israel's society. And Isaiah 16, down to chapter 4, verse 1, focuses on the the women as they represent Israel's society. And using both the the masculine and the feminine forms of the word support and supply, Isaiah is basically saying, he's giving them a picture of the removal of every support of every kind. He starts with bread and water. God will take that away. We think of bread and water as the sort of meager meal of prisoners, don't we? As the most basic, minimal for survival. Beloved, even our minimal essentials come from God by His grace. 
We are not entitled to it, and, and God may take it away. And, and with the taking away of bread and water, Isaiah foresees a, a complete economic collapse. And 100 years from the writing of Isaiah, when Assyria invades Israel, beloved, things get so desperate that the Bible tells us they ate even their own children. We see this collapse economically, but we also see the collapse of male leadership. Verses 2 to 3, the Lord takes away every level of leadership. That word supply could also be translated staff, like a, an old man's walking stick. And that's what leadership is meant to be to a people. It's meant to be a support. It's meant to be something you, you lean on, something that, that carries you. And here, God has kicked the stick from under his people. It removes support. Notice verse 2, military support, the mighty man and soldier. Also civil and religious support, the judge and prophet, the diviner and elder. God takes away the, the sort of nobility, the, the junior and senior leaders, the captain of 50 and man of rank. Even the, the secular and pagan, along with the religious forms of, of counsel, God takes away the, the counselor and magician, the, the expert in charm, charms. There's nowhere to turn for guidance, for teaching, for counseling, for direction. There'll be no one who can point the people of God into the way of God. Think about how often we, we need leadership, beloved. In some sense, we're seeking leadership kind of all the time. I mean, you're going to go home and ask Alexa a question? You're looking for a little guidance. Maybe you're not that fancy. You're still Googling, right? <laughs> you're looking for leadership or, or student, uh, a fifth grader who asked their teacher for help with a math problem. Looking for leadership. Or you'll go to your workplace tomorrow and there perhaps will be some assignment or some, some problem that, that needs a solution. And, and you may say to your supervisor or your boss, you know, can you help me? Can you give me guidance? Can you give me leadership with this task? Think of how often you email or call a friend and say, help me out. Help me think about this thing. Or in times of trouble, you might call a policeman or a policewoman or a fireman. I mean, try to imagine life with no leadership whatsoever. A society where leadership is altogether taken away. It'd be utter chaos and confusion, wouldn't it? It'd be a near complete destruction of that society. It'd bring about what we see in verses 4 and 5. We see there also the collapse of the entire social order. Social relationships are turned on their heads. Notice in verse 4, children rule over the adults. You see that they're also in, in verse 12, their infants shall be their oppressors and their women shall rule them. This is not Isaiah being sexist about women. This is a poetic way of talking about the inexperienced and, and those who are not customarily involved in leadership and power now being in those positions. And that day, that would have been typified by infants. It's interesting, the word that's used there of infants refers to this, this lack of ability to govern oneself. And, and it refers to a, a kind of unpredictability and a thoughtless cruelty. Maybe that sounds familiar. And the leaders will be spoiled brats when God judges his people by removing good leadership. I notice there in verse 5, the, the neighbor harms neighbor. In the Bible, neighbor is meant to be a, a sort of a term of endearment and, and someone with whom you have um, affection and closeness and love. But here, one neighbor oppresses the other and each oppresses all. Let's see how respect is flipped on its head. The young people are insolent. They are disobedient, disrespectful to their elders. Even the bums despise the bosses there at the end of verse 5. Those people of no reputation or respect are dishonoring the honorable. So when the social order collapses... All the sort of natural feelings of neighbor love and of neighbor care and of respect between generations and of natural affection give way to oppression 
and abuse and injustice. We don't have to work hard to imagine this, do we? Imagine an unqualified church leader who lords it over their congregation in abusive power. Consider a nation whose leader has no qualification to lead and, and who bullies or, or does worse to the people. Or think of the many communities around the city and around the country where, where what we're seeing here pictured in these opening verses is, is true. In such communities, there is high suspicion and low trust. There's great isolation and minimal contact between neighbors. People, especially older people and the very young, hide indoors while, while younger people in their, in their strength run amok in the streets. Young people have no guidance. Beloved, you've heard me say that if you take the neighbor out of neighborhoods, that's how you get hoods. And this text is primarily about God judging Judah and Jerusalem, but we can see these same judgments on any community or any people who do not worship God. If we abandon the worship of God, then society will eventually collapse under God's judgment. There's one more collapse here, verses 6 and 7. From the collapse of civic commitment. Not only will good leadership be removed, but there will also be, notice there, a refusal to lead, even when the qualifications are lowered. So one man will say to his brother, Look, you got a coat. <laughs> that qualifies you to lead us. <laughs> come, come, come lead over this heap of ruins, right? You see how minimal are the expectations of leaders in that text? But then notice in verse 7, the brother like, no, 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 no. I ain't got no coat. I ain't got no meal. Leave me alone. I ain't trying to be bothered with y'all. It's the death of civic commitment. It's the death of civic engagement. It's the death, the death of caring for the well-being of neighbor to the point where you will actually embrace the mantle of leadership and step into that role. I think we should understand that when good people refuse to lead God's people, that's a part of God's chastisement. Good leadership and the good use of authority bless the people of God. Especially in situations of complete chaos and, and devastation, that's when leadership makes a tremendous difference. And so when we come to the New Testament, we think about qualifications in the New Testament, we find statements like this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, if anyone desires to be an overseer, they desire a noble task, a good thing. Or 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, where Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is under your care, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you're forced and your arm is twist, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Such leadership is a divine blessing. It's a good gift from God. And the removal of such leadership is a hard curse on any people. A people who do not stand with God cannot stand when God judges them. The collapse will be devastating and complete. As one commentator put it, essentially what we have in chapter 3 is God's demolition of Judah. It demolishes them. And so, beloved, I trust that you can see some obvious applications from this first section of the text. One is we should pray. We should pray faithfully. We should pray faithfully for God to continue to give to his people leaders who are a blessing to his people. And we should pray that the society of God's people will be marked by the sort of character of God, by righteousness and mercy, justice and love. And we should pray that, that God would continue to supply the, the needs of his people, the, the bread and the water of his people, that he might stay his judgment. And we should pray that we should recognize the hand of God's judgment and chastisement when it comes to his people. For only one thing is worse than being judged by God. It's being judged by God and being too foolish to recognize it. And so we should pray. So why is this all happening to Jerusalem and Judah? Why has God chosen to take so much away from his people? 
Is God just mean and unpredictable and unreasonable? Or is there a reason for this devastation? We see the reason stated in verses 8 to 12. These verses point out that not only point out not only Israel's sin, but they teach us something important about the nature of sin. Look with me again in verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Verse 8 gives us the reason very plainly, doesn't it? God judges Israel because they have sinned against him. And not in some small way, they have defied the glory of his presence. And for that sin, they are ruined before God. That's the nature of sin. Sin ruins us before God. It, it bends us and flattens us. See the, see the image that Isaiah uses here in verse 8. He says that Israel has, has stumbled and, they, and that they fall. This is the opposite of standing upright in God's will. When we lose our spiritual footing before God, we fall into sin. Some of us are at the age where falling is serious business. We used to be able to fall and bounce right back up. I took Titus fishing to Point Lookout the other weekend. And at one point he asked me to, to join him out on this this kind of pier made of, made of big stones, made of big rocks. And he was barefooted, and I was like, you know, be careful. I don't want you to slip because water is splashing up on it. I had on my little Tim's trying to do my best Jahil imitation and, and uh, went up on the rocks with him, being very careful. And we were up there for a minute, and he said, okay, let's get down. And I said, great. And so I go down, and, and I, I, I'm looking, choosing my path really carefully, and and there's a rock that's kind of flat and slopes at what looks like a good angle. And I saw that it was wet, but it didn't compute. I stepped on that rock. My feet went slide like this. Boom, I slide down the rocks. And Titus such a dear son. He says, Dad, you okay? You okay? I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. But the truth was, the whole way down, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm falling. <laughs> I'm falling. I'm falling. It's slow motion. And I, and I get down, and I'm on the ground, and I'm like, you got to do that self-check, right? Like, well, anything hurt, you know, and, you know, and I'm trying to get myself together, and, and okay, I think I can get up now, you know. And sin's a lot like that. Kicks your legs right out from under you. But sin is deceptive and subtle. You don't necessarily think about the fall that you're engaged in. And sometimes you can fall so low, it's doubtful you can get up. And this is what has happened to Israel. Their, their sin has, has caused them to fall, to, to stumble. They have collapsed morally so far that God now is turned to them in his righteous judgment. And notice what the end of verse 8 says. All sin is not just stumbling and falling, but, but in this case, they are defying God's glory. His glorious presence. It reminds us that everything we do is connected with the God who made us. Everything we do as image bearers of God, made in his likeness, reflects on him and reflects on his glory. Nowadays you hear so much about the image of God, the imago Dei, and respecting that. What's curious to me is that the clearest statements in the Bible about what it means to be made in the image of God are moral statements. So when Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 24, that we are being renewed in the image of our creator, he explains what he means there in righteousness. And every place where we are unrighteous, we deface that image. We defy his glory. And the ones who most defy it, sadly, who are most able to defy it, 
are those who know better and those who have been saved by him, his covenant people. And so this sin is a defiance of, of God. Actually, all people know better. That's the argument of Romans 1. And this is why none will be without an excuse on the, on the day of judgment. Verse 9 describes the defiance so clearly. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. See, this is stiff-necked sin. This is sinning with a high hand. It's not merely a mistake. This is rebellion. And notice, it brings its just desert. What they have done, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. Why? For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. So far from being just kind of arbitrary or mean or capricious, God is exact in the judgment of his people. His judgment is just. He is not unfair and unpredictable. The Lord's judgment is holy and it's appropriate to the actions being taken. It's in direct consequences to what Israel's hands have done. Judgment is something that sinners bring on themselves, not something that comes out of nowhere without reason. This is why on the day of judgment, everyone who is judged will be quiet without an excuse. This is why Bill O'Reilly will not be able to say, I'm mad at God. On that day, for God will say, you did it to yourself. Your sins have come home to roost. And Paul makes it very clear, Romans 3, 23, for the wages, the payment, the earning payment of sin is death. So here we see in this middle section of the text the, the collapse of morality. That's, the, that's what happens when God withdraws all support and supply. And then we'll see finally the collapse of the covenant. The collapse of society, the collapse of morality leads to uh, a collapse in God's relationship with his people. That's what covenant means. It's another word for relationship. But it's a special kind of relationship. It's one that God himself establishes with people and he establishes the terms of that relationship. And often it has a kind of structure. If you think of a text like Deuteronomy 28, if you obey me, then in this relationship I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will judge you. In a very simplified way, that's what's happened here with Israel. God chose them and promised them blessing, that he would be their God and they would be his people, but they have broken covenant with God. And now God, just as he promised, it's turning to them, and the imagery changes in verse 13. Notice we walk into the courtroom with God. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. In this scene, God is not only the judge, but he's also the prosecutor. He's the one bringing the charges. That's a bad day. Notice how he lists the charges. They devoured the vineyard. There, the vineyard is a symbol for God's people. The rulers have eaten up the people. And notice what belonged to the people, the spoil of the poor, is in your houses. They have taken from the poor to fill and decorate their own homes with it. I notice the imagery gets stronger. They have crushed the poor. They grind the face of the poor. I feel like as I preach through Isaiah, I need to keep stressing that while we can read Isaiah 3 and see parallels with secular governments, the prophecy of Isaiah is about God's covenant people. Isaiah's concern and God's concern with regard to injustice is a concern about injustice in the church, injustice among God's people before it moves out to concern in the world. And beloved, the more I look at the Bible and the more I look at Isaiah, the sicker I get at the state of the church on this issue. From 
commentators like Sean Hannity being interviewed and applauded doing a Christian worship service. Doing a worship service. To lawmakers making it harder for citizens to sue banks and, and credit card companies for their exploitive practices. So that the wealthy in those financial institutions have an easier time. And the poor have a more difficult time. To abortion. Celebrated and defended as a right, as a good. Marching in the streets, just as this text says. To lawful and innocent immigrants threatened and deported. While some in the church cheer that on. To victims of abuse. So neglected by the church as to be doubly abused. So much so that so many nowadays feel themselves to have been so treated poorly by the church that they are, quote, divorcing the church or hashtag empty the pews. The church has its Bible open and its mouth closed. We're not careful. We grind the faces of the poor and crush the poor among God's people. And for a great many who have For a great many who have abortions, a great many who are immigrants, a great many who are victims of abuse of various sorts, a great many of them are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are not strangers to us. They are siblings. They're Christ's people. They're our people. In verse 13, 14, 15, Cry out to ask the princes of the people, what did you do in defense of the poor? Did you grind them or did you care for them? You see, in this text, the princes of the church, we have reason to check ourselves for at least indifference to this and perhaps complicity and maybe even outright guilt. The princes of the church and all the people have reason to tremble, beloved. We have reason to tremble at the thought that Almighty God not only takes the bench as judge, but also prosecutes a case against his people. And so Peter's not playing, and he's not being hyperbolic, and he's not forgetting his theology of, of once saved, always saved. He's not, he's not forgetting the balance of the Bible when he says in 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment begins at the household of God. The church of God does not take that seriously enough when it comes to justice, justice and righteousness and defending the poor and the abused. Evangelical churches have been compromised on this issue since George Whitfield built orphanages for orphans and decided without a thought that he could use slave labor to do it. Evangelical churches have been compromised on this issue since the great theologian Jonathan Edwards decided he would write at length to defend the revivals, which he should have did, but not leave a scrap of paper in defense of the release of African slaves. The churches have been compromised from the 1700s when it decided that slaves could be baptized as Christians and even become full communicant members of churches, but not be free brothers and sisters. This is a long brokenness in our churches. And there is much that God is saying to us in his word, particularly in this season, when there are so many instances on every hand for God's people to be alert to injustice and God's people to lean into righteousness as best we can. And so you see here, God calls these people to give an account. He brings his charges against Israel. And then we see the verdict in verses 16 through the end of the chapter. It's a powerful picture of Judah's collapsing covenant relationship with the Lord when he 
describes the daughters of Zion here. He's referring to the, to the women of Israel, but, but they are, just as the men in the early part of the chapter, are representative of the whole of the nation. Just as the men represent aspects of judgment, so we see the women represent the spiritual state of the country. The women are proud. See, they're described there as haughty in verse 16. And they are immoral. They walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. They have become seducers, dressed in fine clothes and jewelry. And there's an irony in this text. I remember when Chrissy and I were about to get married, my mom was uh, checking in on me, make sure I was ready. And she said, uh, you know, kind of smiling. My mom's a little cheeky sometimes. And she says, you know, now you're about to get married. That means you got to buy your wife a whole new wardrobe of clothes and stuff. I said, huh, say what? <laughs> she I just scraped together them coins to get that little ring, man. She said, no. She said, you, your new wife, man, you're supposed to bring her home, and she ain't supposed to have to wear nothing old. She's supposed to wear all new clothes and new jewelry, and you're supposed to be able to provide that. See, Christy liked that. She didn't live that, <laughs> but she liked that. And it's funny, the older I get, the more ways I find, to my surprise, honestly, that my mom's thinking is really quite biblical. At least has illusions that, that come from the Bible. Because when the Lord took Israel to be his people, he describes it as taking them as his bride. And when he takes Israel as his bride, there are several passages in the Old Testament where he describes himself as supplying to her a brand new wardrobe which is symbolic of their righteousness with him. So if you, if you want to look at this, keep your finger in uh, Isaiah 3 and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. If you're using one of those Bibles we provided, it's on page 702. Ezekiel chapter 16 begins with God describing, basically finding Israel as an orphan left by the side of the road. And it talks about his taking her and cleansing her and uh, caring for her. And then when we come down to around verse 8, she's grown up now, and God's going to take her as his wife. Now listen to this description. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelet on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. That's the way God loves his bride. By his love, he beautifies her. He dresses her and, and adorns her, and she grows more radiant. You may be thinking of Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are called to love their wives in the same way as Christ has loved the church, and to make them spotless and without wrinkle and, and more radiant as a consequence of their love. God uses that same image here. But now, if you were to continue reading Ezekiel 16 or flip back to Isaiah chapter 3, you will see that Israel has become unfaithful. She uses her new clothing and she uses her jewelry, she uses her attractiveness to go after other gods, to give herself away to other lovers, as it were. So when we come to Isaiah, Isaiah shows us a picture of the breakup. When God catches Israel in their unfaithfulness, 
and begins to take back all that he had given her. Now we're going to read verses 18 to 24, and I just want to say we're meant to feel the emotion and the loss of this breakup. I think that's why God lists all these items and why it takes us a moment to read this section. So as we do this, try to picture what it would be like to have been married to God who dressed you head to toe in the finest things and then to have him strip it all from you one item at a time in front of the watching universe. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. It's a devastating picture of the removal of God's favor and love from his covenant people. The undressing of his bride to leave her in her shame. That's the picture God uses here to describe his judgment against Israel. The covenant between God and Judah has collapsed. And not only has that sort of image of a marriage between God and his people collapsed, but notice the last verse of the text, verse 1 so has marriage itself collapsed. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Can you imagine? Men having fallen so much in verse 25, I think it is, that the ratio is seven to one. Women are saying, listen, I... I don't expect a husband to provide for me. I'll provide for myself and only just let me be married to you so, so I'm not put to shame in a culture that valued marriage in that way. And we have our strange perversions of that in our culture today. And all the ways in which women say, I don't need a man. And in truth, many of them do better than men. But in the same way in which that, that same kind of blessing of God and providence of God turns in on itself and, and women begin to sometimes despise men even. Even in their own marriages. Disrespect and dishonor. And where many, many find themselves providing not just for themselves but for their husbands. And there's a sense in which you can look at that and praise God that he is providing but can we read the signs of judgment? Can we read the signs of disorder? Can we read the signs of hardship that come from the removal of grace? Even as it's reflected in the inability of men to provide or the unwillingness of men to provide and the very thing itself, provision, which is meant to be an expression of love, becomes contention and stress the covenant of marriage, we could go on. We could go on. This is devastating when God withdraws from his people. And the question is, how do we escape the collapse? How do we get out of this? Well, in this entire chapter, there's only one line of hope. I wonder if you saw it. Verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. <laughs> God is saying through Isaiah, make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. 
Let the wicked among my people know that their deeds will bring my judgment upon their head. But let the righteous know that even though they have to suffer in this same society and suffer the things that are going to come upon the world, they themselves will be okay. I will remember their righteousness and I will bless them. The question is, how does that become true of us? When the the judgment of God comes, how is it that the righteous will be all right? Who are the righteous in this text? I think the righteous might be defined by three things, thinking about the whole canon of Scripture. Number one, the righteous have Christ as their Lord, not human leaders. Number two, the righteous have Christ as their righteousness, not their own. And number three, the righteous remain dressed in Christ's robes. The leader we need is not a man. The leader we need is Jesus. The head of all rule and authority, the Bible tells us. The the shepherd whose people shall not want. The righteousness we need is not a righteousness of our own. It is the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. For Jesus has suffered God's judgment in our place, and he has obeyed God's law for us. And in doing so, he provides perfect righteousness, both in taking away the wrath of God and providing obedience to God. It's in his crucifixion and resurrection that Christ, as we read in the call to worship, becomes wisdom for God. That is righteousness, holiness, and sanctification for those who believe in him. And because of our Lord's sacrifice for us, we are again dressed as his bride. The future of the righteous, those who believe in Jesus, is not balding and being stripped in judgment. The future of those who believe in Christ is described in Revelation chapter 19. Turn with me there as we conclude. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. If you're new to the Bible, that's the very last book of the Bible. So go to the back and turn back a couple of pages. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. But we get a picture of another marriage. And we get a picture of another wardrobe. And this is our hope. John writes there in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Ultimately, the church looks back to Israel and Isaiah 3 for instruction, but we look forward to Revelation 19 for hope. We recognize that we are people sometimes improperly dressed, not fully clothed, and we are people who sometimes stain our righteousness, but but Christ whose blood continues to cleanse us and Christ who provides us his own fine linen, well, he has a new wardrobe for us. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. And Christ's bride will finally be joined together with him for all of eternity. And here the text tells us, blessed are those who are invited. And today if you're here and you're not a Christian, God invites you to this marriage. This marriage between his son and his church. And he invites you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus as the Lord who was crucified for your sin to take away your guilt and who was resurrected from the grave to to purchase for you eternal life and righteousness with God. That's how you receive the invitation to this supper. It's by believing on Jesus and following him. And church, we've received that invitation if we are Christ. And yet you'll notice that when we get there, We'll be dressed in our deeds. The fine linen will be the righteous deeds of the saints. And the question for us is, when we go to this wedding, how will we be dressed? Blue jeans and an Anacostia sweatshirt? 
on the fine linen of righteousness and justice. Will we be those who have heard the Lord's word in Matthew 23, 23? That we should not neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice and faithfulness. Well, if we are going to be such people, we're going to have to hear the Lord speak to us in Isaiah 3, and we're going to have to set our face to pursuing those things practically, truly, daily, as the Lord gives grace and until he comes. May he make us faithful, faithful brides, dressed in white, prepared to meet him on that day. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the glimmer of hope that even one verse gives us. We thank you for how even when you are stirred in your righteous judgment, you nevertheless slip into your word a ray of light. We thank you for calling us to to join you as your righteous ones through faith in Christ and, and to live as sons of light and daughters of light and to to bring forth deeds in keeping with repentance and to serve you, O Lord, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And we do confess, O Lord, that we we find that a challenge, not because we don't want to do it, but because we're weak, we're creatures. We thank you that you've not called us to perfectionism, but to grace. And we praise you that your grace instructs us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we live sober and upright lives in this present evil age. The age is evil and the world is collapsing. But your church will stand. And we pray, O Lord, that you would grant us grace to do our part to make sure that your church stands upright, sure-footed in Christ, living for him in righteousness. We can't do this apart from you. But we can do all things through you. So be with us, your church. Be with all your churches. Grant us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.